Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. Good day to you. Good morning, wherever you are. Welcome. Thank you for taking the time to visit this podcast, or if you're watching on YouTube, to visit this channel. This is the Real Estate 360 Show, and my name is Jason O. Miles. It's just Miles if you know me, right? Uh, all right. So today, guys, I have a real treat for you. We have Anthony Vecino on. Now, Anthony is from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm from St. Paul. It's just a, a coincidence, I, but it's, a, it's an amazing coincidence. Uh, and he has a wonderful story, uh, a wonderful story about real estate and life in general. And we're going to kind of touch a little bit on that. But more importantly, we're going to talk about passive investing and mindset and how you get into that. Well, how you kind of focus on that, how you can begin to put these things together in your life and how you can build a business from very little and turn it into something quite significant later on. So right after the break, we'll be right back with Anthony. See you in a second. This is your man, Miles. We're back. And listen, I'm not going to take a bunch of time and talk anymore. I want to bring Anthony right in so we can have a conversation and get to it. Hey, man, how are you today? I am fantastic. Thanks for having me, Jason. I appreciate it. It's always good to connect with like a fellow Minnesotan. It is because there aren't many of us, you know, not many. I mean, abroad, I should say, outside of Minnesota, you know, yeah. <laughs> we kind of get stuck there. It's not a it's not yeah, necessarily yeah. a bad place to get stuck either. I can tell you that, you know, it, it, it's, it's it's funny. funny. You know, my my I grew up in a military family. My dad was army, so we traveled a ton when I was young, and it just happened to be Minnesota is where I ended up for my last two years of high school. And I left immediately, and I got sucked back in, and then I left. I got sucked back in. I went and lived in like some really cool places like San Francisco and Nashville, but I always got sucked back to Minnesota. So it's home now, I guess. That's right. It, it works out that way, man. You know, you get used to the cold after a while. Mm -hmm. And those yeah, people sleep on Minneapolis and, and uh, St. Paul for how like they're, they're pretty happening places, honestly. Like, and I know that like throws people off, but they truly are. Well, it's a, people just have to go visit once you. I mean, it's not a massive metropolis like in Atlanta or in New York or in LA mm -hmm. or anything like that, you know, you can't really compare it to that. It's a slower pace of life, but there's always something to do. And it's not necessarily just going out to bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. I mean, there's so much to do outdoors. The Boundary Waters, for instance, one of my mm -hmm. absolute favorite places to go. Unfortunately, it was burning this year, but mm -hmm. one of my absolute favorite places to go. There's so much there. There's so much to learn. There's so much education that comes with it's not just going camping or fishing or you know whatever it is you're doing out there i, I remember growing up out there in the boundary waters they had um I, I can't remember exactly what it was called but basically it was the underground railroad experience you know and they would do it mm. day and night you know uh regard all year long you know because the underground railroad happened in the summer and the winter the spring and the fall but that it never stopped. stopped exactly and and it occurred you know they did this in the boundary waters you know kind of mimicking what it's like to get up to canada you know mm -hmm. but i mean that was just one of the things i mean there's just so many we used to leave and then we had to get into it but we used to leave the bar you know because everything would close you know, at 12, 30, 1 o'clock, and we'd go jump in the boat and go fishing. Yep. yep. Yeah. You know, go late night fishing. 
It, it throws it throws people to know that we have like the number one rated parks and recreation and bike trail system in the country, and we're like consistently rated number one or two for quality of life. Like, yeah, we're buried in snow and it's cold for half the year, but honestly, like when when it's not covered in snow, like we're outside all the time. Like we're one of the fittest cities in the country, and in the winter time, we actually. It's interesting. I didn't know this until a couple of years, like maybe a year ago. There's this Norwegian custom called Hugga, where it's this idea that in the winter, we create these nice, warm, cozy, familial places. And so we do a really cool job here in the Twin Cities in the wintertime of making these spaces feel warm and inviting, despite the atrocious weather. And so there's like this culture of just making do and, and being happy with what you have, which I, I really appreciate it. When I lived in the Bay Area, I lived there for four years and I eventually left because the weather was always too good. Like, and it's a weird thing to say, but it's true. Like I lost sense of time. There was no seasonality. And so it became really soft. It was always like 67 degrees and sunny. And so if it was ever 72, I was too hot. If it was ever 62, I was too cold. And I was like, oh, I've become a weenie. Like I need, I need more variety. That's right. And, and you know what? That's, the education system in Minnesota, again, is, mm -hmm. you know, second to none. And then, of course, we have the skyline, you know. So uh -huh. going to what you're talking about now, it doesn't matter if it's cold outside. If you live in the center of either St. Paul or Minneapolis, you're going to be able to, you know, get around without really ever having to go outside for the most part. I, I, I think, think if you're, you're not, not from the Twin Cities and you're hearing this, like the, the Skyway, you, you have no concept for this. It's miles and miles of interconnected Skyway tunnels between all the skyscrapers downtown. Like you can navigate without ever stepping foot outside. And it's, it's amazing. It's worth making the trip up here just for that. that. That is for certain. That is absolutely true. Having grown up there, it was a hangout spot for us in the wintertime because it was so cold. You know, having said that kind of, segueing in, it was an amazing thing to be a part of because while they were building those, when I was a kid, we watched real estate develop all around it. We watched dilapidated mm -hmm. buildings, warehouses, um, um, train yards, you know, where the trains would come and drop stuff off and pick stuff up, just shift right in front of us. I mean, literally right in front of us. The house I grew up in when I was growing up, I, I remember when my mother bought it, she got a, a raise to $30,000 a year, which at that time was big money for, for my family, for sure. And we bought a house and it was, you know, $80,000. Those houses, and now this would have been in the mid eighties. Now those houses over there are going for high threes, you know, 400. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is absolutely bananas. I mean, it's just over the moon. But that is what propelled me personally into uh, real estate. I had an epiphany one day and oh, I really? said, wait, wait a minute. If this can happen in such a relatively short period of time, mm -hmm. you know, what, what can I do on purpose? Because I bought some real estate from my previous business and I bought the real estate not to make money, but to save money because we were sending teams to different cities. And then I would put them in hotels, as I was explaining to you before, I was in the entertainment business. I'd put them in hotels and they would run up the phone bill, you know, just everything. The minibar gone, you know, <laughs> I mean, it would just cost so much money, not to mm -hmm. mention whatever damages they, 
They damaged the doors, the, doors, the, the drywall, the paint. <laughs> so I just I bought these uh, uh, condominiums in different places. And then when I got out of that business, I sold them and I inadvertently mm-hmm. made money. And it made me think of the house that I grew up in. And I said, look, it, I mean, I've just been I've been on the fringe of making money in real estate. Let, what would happen if I actually put forth the effort? So that that's what I did. Now, now you before you got into real estate, you know, you spent your time educating yourself at Augsburg, right? Yeah. yeah so, so I, I went, went to a couple, couple of different, different colleges, but I, I finished up at Augsburg here in Minneapolis, of all places. It's a little school. If you're not from the Twin Cities, you probably never even heard of it. Um, but I went to school for, I got degrees in psychology, English, and religion, and ended up getting a master's. And it was really interesting because I was going to school not knowing what the heck I was going to do with my life. Like, I was just collecting degrees because that was the thing to do. And, like, people said, go to college. But I didn't really have, like, a vision for where I wanted my life to go. And then when I got out of school, like, I struggled all through school because I have, I have severe ADHD. And that was a real... Um, uh, I would say a crux or a cross that I had to bear for a long time because I didn't understand how to how to carry the load on my shoulders. And so what it what it meant was like I was getting fired all the friggin' time. Like regardless of what job, if it was a landscaper or if I was a youth pastor, like I was getting fired from all these jobs. And what became clear was that I was not cut out for the corporate world. There was really no environment where I was going to be able to thrive. And it was because I was like undisciplined, unreliable, unfocused. And like when it came to working for other people, I was at my core really lazy. Like I just wasn't, I just had no incentive to work hard for other people. And and Bill Gates talks about this. He says he would rather hire a lazy A player than a hardworking B player because the lazy A player figures out how to get the work done in less time. And that was me. But like that led to like a lot of internal dissonance because I knew I was phoning it in. And it led to a lot of friction in the workplaces because everybody else could tell that I wasn't doing everything that I could be. I was just doing the player minimum. So that led me down like this other path of like, yeah, I have to figure out some other ways to take care of myself in this life. So I went in, I became a professional rock climber for a number of years and then started writing science fiction and fantasy novels, things that would ultimately let me dictate my schedule and my life. Um, and that all took like a kind of a convoluted path that finally landed me in entrepreneurship and building businesses, which is where I discovered a passion. But definitely when I was little, like I wasn't that kid plucking flowers and selling it back to the neighbor. Like I wasn't the entrepreneurial type. I, I really was. And it just kind of landed in my lap. And I discovered later in life that it was actually kind of a lot of fun building businesses. And, and real estate is just that. Like when you look at what we're doing, single family, fix and flips, multifamily, like they're all just little businesses. And once you understand how a business operates and how to like increase revenue, how to decrease expenses, like you can take that skill anywhere. And what I love about real estate is that at its core, it's very simple. Like most people feel overwhelmed because there are many different ways you could make money in real estate. And so they're drinking from the fire hose and they're overwhelmed thinking, like, oh, I don't know where to start or what to do. So it all feels complicated. But really when you strip it all away and you get down to the, the few levers that really matter, it's actually really simple. And it's not rocket science and anybody can, can understand it, which is like, my whole goal now is to try and share that message with as many people as possible. Like, uh-huh. hey, this vehicle, it's available if you want to get into it. It's not, it's not something that is over anybody's capacity, I would say. That's right. And But that goes right back to your publishing company. 
you know, one mm-hmm. lazy robot. You know, it says, <laughs> yeah. in there, it says in there, dream big and share to achieve. So this is a, a thought process that you've you've had for a while. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, 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 I from a very early time, time, I like started, started to adopt this. This so was my publishing company that had published all my science fiction and, and science and fantasy novels, which is twelve at last count. Is called One Lazy Robot, and I, I love that name because one, it was me owning the fact that I am lazy. Like at the end of the day, I don't want to work harder than is strictly necessary. I work really hard, but I don't want to work unnecessarily hard on any task. I want to figure out how to make it simple, create systems and processes to be efficient, like a robot, and then execute it so that I can move on to the next thing. So I'm not just continuing to solve the same problems over and over. I hate solving the same problem more than once. I want to solve it, improve it, and then move on to bigger, more interesting problems. And so that's, that's just me in a nutshell. Like, and I think a lot of people relate to that. I think what a lot of people, the reason they're unsatisfied in their W2 and their work life it's because they're doing jobs where they just go and they're expected to solve the same problem over and over and over. It's not challenging them. And they, it's like nobody believes that they were put on this planet to be average, right? Like nobody thinks they're an average driver. Nobody thinks they're an average lover. Like nobody thinks their purpose on this planet is to be average. The problem is when we're not expressing our greatness and living up to the potential we all have inside, or at least moving towards it. We're like, what's, what are we doing? Like, we feel discontent and frustration and all these negative emotions. And that's why I think so many people are just unhappy with where they are in life is because they're not, they're not pushing towards their greatness and they know it. That's for sure. And, and you, you touched on your ADD a little while ago. I also share that affliction with you. So I wanted to ask you as you brought this up, how long did it take you to realize or, or when, when? Because I think that we all have this defining moment of when we had the epiphany that I don't want to do the same thing over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And since I realize what's going on inside of me, I'm going to do things that are different every time I do it. When did you have that epiphany? Mm -hmm. I I would like to think that I was like, (laughs) was more self-enlightened than I really was. But like looking back, (laughs) I knew um, when I was 16, I was given the choice of going off of Ridley. And up to that point, Ridlin had a very negative effect on my life. And that was, you know, a drug to help me focus and, and be present and, and learn and, and all these things. But really what it did is it made me feel trapped. It made me feel trapped inside my mind and my body. And I didn't feel like myself. And so when I was 16, I was given the choice of going off of that. And I was like, yes, I'm never going on that again because it made me feel like a prisoner, made me feel trapped. And my highest value is freedom. Like I want to go do what I want, when I want, where I want, who I want. Like that, and that took me a long time to really figure out that that was like a core driver of me. And the problem was I didn't have any systems or processes or any of the, 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 the habits that would allow me to be successful in life. Despite my HD at that point, I was still very unfocused and I couldn't like get things done. I couldn't be present. And so I struggled because on the one hand, I wanted to be free, but with freedom comes unlimited potentiality, unlimited options. And that's a different type of prison because then you can't choose and you're, you're constantly going in a hundred different directions and you're no longer, you don't have momentum or traction. You just have motion. And that's where I found myself until I was about 27 
and my life kind of hit, hit not, a, not rock bottom. Like every, so there are a lot of people who have way worse rock bottoms than mine. Mine was, I wanted to marry a woman and I asked her parents and they said, well, how are you going to provide for her? And at that point I was a professional rock climber, which sounds really cool, but it really just meant that I get to live the life that I want out in the woods in nature, but I wasn't making a ton of money, but I had ultimate freedom, right? So when they asked that question, I was like, well, I don't know. Like I never really thought about what it meant for somebody else to rely on me. And that's when I started writing science fiction and fantasy because I had a skill set. I was like, I'll leverage that. Surely authors make a lot of money. Uh, the punchline is that they don't usually, <laughs> but I didn't know that at the time, right? Like it was a cool thing to do. And then about a year later, that relationship imploded, didn't go anywhere. And suddenly I found myself living in the back of a van in downtown Oakland, $80,000 in debt going, okay, let's pump the brakes. Everything I've been doing up to this point is not working. Like, was that was that van also down by the river? <laughs> there, there is a there was a lake two blocks away. There was no river, but I was I was near a body of water. No, I was I was literally in a van down by the river. I was like that guy, like I was Chris, Chris Farley to a T. And it's, it sounds funny, but it wasn't at the time. Right. <laughs> it was at the time. I was like, holy crap, this is my life. I'm 28. What, what have I done? And there was two problems. One was I didn't know where I wanted to go. I didn't have like a sense of direction or a, a, a goal that I was shooting for. And even if I did have that, I didn't have the plan on how to get that goal. So like, I, I, like if, if you said, okay, I want to do, I want to uh, make a million dollars. Okay. Well, I have no plan for how to do that. And that's when not my second life, but that's when my life as an entrepreneur really began because then I started to look around me and say, What's it mean to set a goal for my life that will allow me not just to be free, but to make an impact? Because I had a mentor around that same time who, who said something that was like really impactful for me, which was that responsibility is the price of freedom. Responsibility is the price of freedom. So for me, that was like this moment of thinking, okay, what is my responsibility to myself, to my family, to the people around me, to the world at large, the community? And how can I start to make an impact that's just beyond me living a life of frivolity out in the woods and climbing mountains, right? And that's when I started building businesses. And, and that only came because a friend came to me and he was like, hey, dude, we got to get you out of this van. Let's go build a window watching company <laughs> of all things. And that's what we started with. And within like a year, we had built that to seven figures. Wow. And yeah, you can make a lot of money washing windows in San Francisco. Who knew? <laughs> but it's like... Wow. It was it was in that moment where I started to realize like entrepreneurship for me was the vehicle for getting out uh, and like claiming control and responsibility for my life, but also for making an impact on the world around me. And that's like the message that I want to share with everybody out there who's maybe in a job that they don't love or they're thinking about getting into real estate. Like real estate is for me the simplest, easiest business to get to, whether that's wholesaling, fixing flips, multifamily, which is what I do. Like it's, it's ultimately very, very simple and accessible. So that can be your gateway to get out of whatever life that you're in right now that maybe you don't love and get into the life that, or start building the life that you do want to love. Absolutely. So fast forwarding from the window washing days to that first piece of property, what did that look like? And what was, what was the, the determining factor, the, the, the switch in your mind that said, you know what, I'm going to go and buy that house or that 
that piece of property. I'm going to go and get that. And Mm -hmm. then I'm going to get another and another and another, and I'm going to make a ton of money because I know for most of us, when we get into real estate, we think we want to do one thing and then that changes over time. And we ultimately wind up doing Mm -hmm. something completely different. So what did that look like for you? First, what did that, what was that, that moment that you said, I've got to go and buy this property to make money. Mm. So that was, that would have been many, many years after my first um, window washing business. And I had gone on a string of building a bunch of other businesses. And at the time when I got into real estate, I was building a manufacturing company and it was a very complicated thing. We were doing a polyurethane cast molding, importing from China, hardware and distributing it. And it was very, very complicated. It was very engaging and very fun, but it was very hard. And at that time, the story that I tell people, and I really don't know, looking back in hindsight, if this is how it happened, but this is a story I share, is that I was driving into downtown Minneapolis and I was looking up at the skyline and the skyline is super beautiful and awesome. And for whatever reason, at that moment, I finally asked the question, who owns all these buildings? Who owns a skyscraper in particular? I was like, I don't even know the answer to that. I'm surrounded by real estate everywhere. And I've never stopped to wonder and ask myself, who owns this? And at that point, I wasn't interested in buying real estate. I wanted to answer that question. And so diving into it, I started to find, okay, this is, there are some rich people and there are some institutions and funds and REITs and things that own these buildings, but largely they're owned by people that aren't different in any material way from me and you. And that was the moment where I was like, holy crap, why am, why am I not doing this? There's real estate everywhere. It's an infinite playground for making impact, not just on your residents or the community, but also for your own life. And so that's, that was the light bulb moment is diving in and trying to figure out who owned all the buildings. And my, my first foray, so I, I did a fix and flip in college. Actually, I did three. I hated it. Like I could swing a hammer. I can't hit a nail. Like construction was not for me. And then many, many years later, a buddy came in and he was buying quads out in Oakland, California. And he's like, hey, do you want to passively invest in these with me? And I was like, sure, I'll give you some money. But at my real first experience with real estate where I was actively managing it, was right after that epiphany of like who owns these things. I went and bought a triplex. I house hacked it with an FHA loan that I put $7,500 into. I bought the building for $246,000. And then nine months later, it had appreciated to $375,000. This was not a fix and flip. I did not put money into it. It just organically appreciated, which sounds really cool. I like, yeah, that's $125,000 of appreciation just in nine months. I'm a brilliant investor. But it, but it wasn't due to my skill, right? It was just based off of the, the market was doing really well. The people around me were selling at a, at a premium. And so I got caught up in the wave too. And so I didn't like that aspect. I didn't like not having control over my building's valuations, which led me to trying to find a better solution where I would be rewarded or penalized for my efforts. So if I sucked, I should lose. If I'm good, I should win, right? That's, that's how I like to play the game. And so that led me into multifamily. So assets that are five units and larger, they're based, their values are based off of not comparable. So it doesn't matter what the guy next door really sold for. It's based off of the income approach. So how my buildings are performing as a building based off of how much they generate in profit. That's what my building is valued based off of. And so that's what I made the move. I started buying larger and larger multifamily assets. 
um, and, and haven't looked back since. And how long has that been since since the moment of your first multifamily? Has been, been about, about seven, seven years. years. Yeah, and so me my my experience was similar to yours. Coming out of the financial crash, you know, I just I lost a ton of money in the single family space. I mean, just I lost everything actually, and had to mm-hmm. rebuild from that. And I I knew before the crash I wanted to get into multifamily, but I didn't make the transition fast enough. So mm-hmm. moving forward a few years, I said, all right, I'm making a little money. I'm wholesaling. I'm fixing some houses. I can afford now to go and start to buy some of these smaller multifamily. So I started to buy six, eight, and 12 unit buildings, value add opportunities in Alabama, in Birmingham in mm. particular. And the reason that I wanted to go there is because I could buy it and fix each unit for ten to twelve thousand dollars. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was it's you can mess up, but it, you're not really gonna mess up. I mean you can mess up and you can come back from it. You can learn how to be an operator and 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 tighten up your skills in situations like that. So I wound up buying collectively 44 properties, held them for a little while, repositioned them over a 12 month period of time sold them. And then I went and bought a 60 unit building. Then I went and bought a 48 unit building. Then I went and bought another 60 unit building. And, you know, that was what it was for me. And I like to call it mailbox money because, mm-hmm. you know, that's what it is. If you're operating efficiently, you've got good management or management processes, uh, you can do very, very well. And then it's a matter of scaling. You know, where do you want to take it at that point? Especially if you're the owner operator, because you're not really sharing in a lot of that equity if you're not raising the capital, right? Or even if you mm-hmm. are raising the capital, you're still going to have anywhere between 50 and if you're Grant Cardone, 94% of the equity, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the financial crisis 2007 and single your experience with single family homes because I think a lot of people when they think about real estate their first reaction is it's risky. And because they think about 2007, they're like, that's all I've heard about was like the, the market tanking. And you have to separate real estate and understand that there are different buckets. Not all real estate is created equal, right? Like a multifamily asset is different than a commercial or like an office building, which is different than single family. And largely the, the financial crisis in 2007 and eight nailed single family market. It got crushed because that was really based off of the comparable approach, right? And so everybody was like bidding up the houses and then there was no underlying value that was substantiating that. Whereas the multifamily assets, we saw less than 1% foreclosure rate on them because the way that the, the banks were loaning against them is based off the debt coverage ratio. And as long as the building is performing above and beyond the certain you know reserve requirement, it's good to go. And so... We saw some stagnation during that period in this particular asset class, but we didn't see an implosion. And a lot of people like in the multifamily space didn't really end up getting burned in the same way that you know single family people did, which isn't to say that like multifamily is better than single family, it's just about understanding the differences, right? So I think it's interesting, like you're a living example of like uh, what probably happened during that period. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. I mean, when we look at things like that, when we look at where you can go and what you need to do, especially 
in the single family space. I work with a lot and do a lot of training with people that are coming into the business, right? And we have different ways, different avenues for them to get into the business. But like you said, you know, people think that they need to start right there. Well, if you meet someone who's got, you know, a bucket full of cash and the willingness to do it, I mean, the single family space is not the place for them unless they want to be a lender, right? But if they're looking for something different, that's just not the space for them. And as you said, the valuation there, how it's valued is so, so, so very different from one situation to the other. Having said that, areas, certain areas will have a cap rate. And mm -hmm. your ability to go into that area and change it, basically, add value. Like, just to give you an example, we're looking at a property now. It's it's half of an apartment complex, right? Because they, they cut it up, but it's pretty big. Mm -hmm. Still 200 and some odd units. But even at the price we're getting, it's a value-add situation. Once we have gone in, done the renovations, the area should be a 9 or 10 cap. Just gives you an idea of what that area is really like, right? Mm -hmm. But once we do the work based on the rents that we know we're going to be able to get over there, it puts us at like a almost a 17 cap. Mm. This, is, I, I think this is a really internally important. that is that's internal. Yeah. yeah, I think this is a really important point that uh, I, mean, I don't depending on this is might be a, a, a pretty advanced, sophisticated point. So like if you're listening to this at home and you're like, uh, I don't understand what a cap rate is like. Don't worry, nobody really understands what a cap rate is. It's like pretty complicated. But here's the, here's the thing is that a lot of people fixate on the going in cap rate, thinking that's like this all important number, where in the value add model, it's really irrelevant because you're not, you're, that's based off of the operator who currently owns it and what their operations are, which is not what you're going to do, right? You're, you're going to add value. And so that going in cap rate versus what it's going to ultimately be once you've added value and stabilized it, fundamentally different. And so I just want to put that out there because I think a lot of people in this environment, they're like, deals can't be found right now. It's like, well, how are you underwriting them? How are you looking at them? Because at the end of the day, like unicorn deals aren't found, they're made, right? And you have to understand like, what are those levers that you can really uh, pull to, to maximize the potential of the deal? Good point. I mean, that's a phenomenal point because... You're right. It is irrelevant when you're looking at it from a value add perspective. But when you're underwriting it and what we say when we when we talk about underwriting is, you know, looking at what it's cash flowing at right now and where else can profit centers be created or increased. Right. Can rents go mm -hmm. up? Can you make more money off of laundry or whatever, the, whatever the scenario is? You have to find where where those bits and pieces are, and depending on the size of it, you know, a 20 or $25 increase in rent can equate to hundreds of thousands of dollars in added value. Mm -hmm. You simply have to know where it is and how to take advantage of it because Anthony said it right. If you're not looking at what it can be, how you can add value, and you're only looking at it from what the current operator is pitching it at, you're going to be stuck there. You're going to be stuck. Mm -hmm. You have to create the opportunities and you create those opportunities by adding value. And you can do that in any number of ways. You know, I think, I think, I think Winston, Winston Churchill, Churchill said it best. He's, he's like, 
pessimists see difficulty in every opportunity, optimists see opportunity in every difficulty. And when you go into an asset, you should be asking yourself, where is the opportunity? And the way to find those opportunities is by asking yourself then the question, what are the problems here? Go looking for the problems and then solve those and then see what kind of value you've ultimately added. And at the end of the day, like from, here's, a, here's the tip that we utilize constantly is the best piece of investing advice or business advice I was ever given was on my second business. I had a, a mentor who said, a dollar saved is worth more than a dollar earned because the dollar saved is entirely going to the bottom line. Whereas a dollar earned in revenue is always on a margin. So even if you're operating at a 50% margin, if I increase revenue, so rents by $1, only 50 cents of that is making it to my bottom line, which is ultimately what the value is going to be derived by. But if I can go and save a dollar, if I can cut a dollar out of operational expenses, that's a pure dollar to the bottom line. And so, yes, we, we, want, we want to go play offense. We want to increase the revenue. And like that's where a lot of people fixate because it's sexy. We like to put points on the board and drive up the revenue. But defense wins championships. Go to the expenses and figure out where can you do better. Now, with that said, do not make the mistake of thinking, oh, cutting expenses is easy. I'll just go reduce this and I'll cut that and this is the other thing. Like now you've cut too far, too much fat, and now the, now the organism can't survive. And a lot of people find themselves in that situation too. That's right. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of different places that people go to learn how to invest in the multifamily space. And if, I mean, you've been in it seven years and there's going to be people that say, well, you, you know, you really just got started. And then there's going to be people that say, man, seven years is a long time. You know, you learn a lot in seven years. You learn a lot about what not to do, more importantly. And being in the position, like I can honestly tell you that as an operator, as an operator, as an operator, I've only been operating on my own for five years, which I have learned a ton. I've learned a lot about what not to do. And and as I was telling you before, you know, we, we I took these little ones and turned them into something else, added value so that I can go and play a little bit bigger game, you know, with with bigger kids, you know, because ultimately it, it means something different. But if you just take the time to learn, just learn how to operate, just learn where to go to get the education on that. Right. Because there's a there's a ton of different places out there now. Right, Anthony? There's a bunch of different places where people can learn how to invest in multifamily. But ultimately, it's what you want out of the situation, right? Mm -hmm. Do you want to earn 6%, 8%, or do you want to operate? And there's there's no wrong answer there. There's no wrong answer. You may be a working professional, and you need a place to park your, you know, your passive cash to potentially give you more money. And you don't have time to go out there and learn how to be an operator, nor do you want to. You just want to get greater returns. Mm -hmm. Anthony, you have a few things, a few options as it relates to that, don't you? I mean, you're nailing it on the head, man. Like it's all self-awareness first and foremost, like understand your situation and what's your desired end state. Do you want to leave your W2 and become a full-time real estate investor? Because I'll tell you, it's not, 
it's not everything you think it is. Like executing and operations are hard. And maybe maybe you love what you do currently. And don't get caught in the hype thinking that you have to go be an active investor. There are other you know options, but it starts with understanding what are your strengths, your weaknesses, your wants, and your desires, and making sure that you're choosing a path that's actually going to lead you to that destination. And the problem that I think most people find themselves in is they just start, they, they see a path and they're like, oh, that could lead a place. That sounds like a cool place to go. But they start down that path and then later on they, they stop and reflect and go, oh, maybe this isn't where I actually want to go. And so from the very beginning, just figure out, like before you jump in, figure out where it is that you're trying to go to and then you know work backwards and say, is this vehicle actually the one that's going to get me to my destination or is this just a, a side quest? And at the end of the day, like, there's a there's a big difference in this space of multifamily, and you you I'm sure you see this all the time where people are like, I have fifteen thousand units of assets under management, and then you start doing some digging, and really what they've done is they've like invested fifty thousand dollars in like a bunch of passive investments, and now they're using that it's a leverage and say I'm a capital raiser, I'm this that the other thing, like and that's fine, like there's a there's a place for that for sure. But in my heart and the people that I look to and really respect are the ones who in this space are purebred operators. Because there's a difference there's a the difference between a million dollars and a million dollar idea is exactly one million dollars of execution. So the people who are actually able to go and operate and execute the game plan, like you know, like that's the hard part. <laughs> that's that's the that's the tricky bit. And so you know, if you're listening to this at home and you're like, maybe I want to be an active investor, maybe I don't want to be like, keep in mind, like, this is all very simple, but don't make, don't mistake that for easy. That's exactly right. And it does take a lot of work. It does take an education. It is not something that you want to throw dollars at and learn along the way, because these are big dollars. These aren't, you know, <laughs> these aren't 10 or $12,000 deals. These are, these are big dollars, you know, and these are big consequences. consequences. Exactly. I mean, these are, you lose the money, uh, it's life changing, right? So it doesn't mean you can't get back up. It just means it'll, it might take you a couple of years to do it, to get back to a level playing ground. So, you know, learn along the way, learn, learn first, then operate, work with operators, learn from them, hone your processes and, and become great before you jump in with both feet, you know, neck deep, mm -hmm. right? I, I like to say, you know, I'll jump in with both feet as long as it's ankle deep. If I don't know what I'm doing, but if I if I know what I'm doing, I have no problem, you know, getting my getting my head under the water. But I mm -hmm. gotta I gotta know exactly what I'm doing. But I mm -hmm. gotta get. I we think, gotta get. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, you know, piggybacking on on that, you know, Warren Buffett's first rule of investing is don't lose money. His second rule is don't forget rule number one. And when you're new to investing, when you're first starting out, I want you to keep in mind the three most important investments that you can make. Number one is in yourself. Number two is in your network. And number three is in your community. Any investment that you make into yourself, into your skills, into leveling it up is never going to be a bad investment. It will pay dividends until you die. Any money you spend investing in your network, which let's just change that word to relationships, is never going to be wasted. Any money that you invest into your community is never going to be wasted. So start with those, build your skills, build your network, and then start impacting your community with real estate investing. That's beautiful. Yourself, your network, your community, your relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, I mean, it can't get any better than that. So 
I want to ask you this question in closing. I always try to throw one at, at people a little, not necessarily a curveball, but something that hopefully will get you to thinking. Now, this is a <laughs> self-referenced goal. This, this question is about a self-referenced goal. Mm-hmm. What do you have to do today to be better tomorrow for you? Mm-hmm. And that's a killer question. What do you have to do? What do I have to do to be better tomorrow than I am today? And this is an important one because my only goal and the only person I compete with is the person I was yesterday. Let me be clear on that because, but you're, you're exactly right. It's only for you, but it's what do you have to do today to be better tomorrow? Not what you have to do tomorrow to be better today. What do you have mm-hmm. to do today to be ready for tomorrow? So or to be better tomorrow. I'm going to say, say I'm going to say, say two things. things. I, I need, need to, to reflect, reflect, and I need to intend. And so, and so what I mean, I mean by that is I need to reflect on what, what needs, needs to get, get done, done, and then I need to intend what I'm going to do next. next. Right, and, and so. This is, I think we go through our days and we put to-do lists together and all these things that we have to get done. But then at the end of the day, we don't sit down and reflect what went well, what could I have improved? And so for me to be better tomorrow, I need to reflect on what I did today, where where the opportunities for improvement were, where I could have done better, where I excelled at. I need to have that self-reference. And I think we, a lot of times we don't reflect well enough. And once I've reflected on how and what I did today, I then need to intend what I'm going to do tomorrow to build on that. Perfect. I like that, man. That's that's what I'm talking about. Now, let me ask you, how can our listeners get in contact with you if they wanted to uh, get involved with you one way or another? Yeah, you can head over, um, you know, our, our investment company is InvictusMultifamily.com. So go check that out. It, we do have a book that we give away for free. Like it's an Amazon bestseller, but we also just want to spread the word. So it's Passive Investing Made Simple. If you go to thepassiveinvestingbook.com, you can get a free copy. Um, yeah, otherwise, find me. I'm Anthony Vecino. I'm literally the only Anthony Vecino pretty much on the internet. So just Google that and you'll find me. <laughs> and I'll put some links. I'll put some links in there as well uh, in the description for this. Whether, again, you're listening to this on whatever podcast you like to listen to or you're looking at it on YouTube, just go to the description. The links to connect with uh, Anthony will be in there if you want to connect with him and start to build the way you want to build. That's what this is all about. That's what Real Estate 360 is all about. That's why we share these um, uh, experiences, other people's experiences, what they're doing, how they're doing it. And how you can be a part of that and start to build the life that you envision for yourself over time. So again, sir, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us today, spending this time with my audience. Uh, Thank you for the conversation before and during. I appreciate it very, very much. And I look forward to working with you again in the future. Same, Jason. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today, man. This was a ton of fun. Absolutely. So... You listeners, thank you so much, and we'll see you on the other side. This is your man, Jason Miles.